0: It is certainly good for each of us to have the opportunity to come together on this Lord's Day afternoon, having been blessed with such a rich and beautiful day from the perspective of the outside elements and the weather and other matters like that. But that blessing is even enhanced as we come together for spiritual reasons to offer worship to the great God who made us and fashioned us, and indeed before whose eyes we stand in judgment on some great and glorious day. As we come together tonight, For the perspective of our lesson, you may have noticed in Lucas's reading a moment ago, as well as in the title there printed in the bulletin, that it'll have to do with divisive elements that may well be present at the church from time to time. And in fact, isn't it true that as we noted this morning, the history of the Church of Christ as we understand the greatness of that organization and the beauty of the blessed body of Christ from time to time has had to deal with issues and problems and various elements as they have arisen. It would be fair to begin with a brief review, to some extent making note of some of the ideas that we mentioned in passing even this morning in our study. That great church that our Savior promised to build in Matthew 16, 18, and that beautiful organization of which you and I are today blessed to be a part, is that very organization whose beginning in Acts chapter 2 was an explosive event. For in the chapters that succeeded that one, we so easily appreciate the phenomenal growth as individuals came to appreciate and love the truth as they heard it. And they gave their lives in response of humble submission. And as they obeyed that truth, they wore the name Christian, Acts 11 verse 26. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. As the book of Acts rolls onward, the Apostle Paul in various missionary journeys extended the boundaries of that kingdom and preached the truth, even in Europe. And all the while, individuals were so appreciative and thankful, and so many added their names to the Lamb's book of life as they responded in faithful obedience. However, isn't it also true that as we noted this morning, there was a movement away from that truth As we noted, the tragedy and sadness came to be recognized in the agency of the Dark Ages, where, in fact, a typical knowledge of the Bible was far less than it ought to have been. And finally, in the Reformation movement, an attempt was made to reform the church then present to make it more in line with the scriptures and the revelation contained therein. But then finally, in the Restoration movement, there was a heightened understanding that one must turn back to this book and use it alone, and one cannot reform something in which there are inherent difficulties and problems, and make it like this book of which we now read in the church that's found in it. But to say all that—that's not to say that that church, the church of Christ, has not faced and dealt with issues and problems that have scattered that has scattered its history. In fact, in the last 150 years, I have taken the liberty of listing a few of the difficulties and problems that brethren have had to face. For example, as you notice in there, some of these have produced disfellowship and even disunity. Some of them, as you can see in the listing, have had to do with things like congregational cooperation, And by that, all that it means is, can one congregation go in with another, pool their resources for the accomplishment of some good? Is that something that can be done by the approval of heaven? Or can a congregation support an orphan home or an orphanage, if you will? Can a congregation, in fact, go even so far as to eat on its premises These questions are excellent questions. They are wonderful questions. And in fact, there is no question not worthy of consideration when it deals with matters of spirituality. Is is that a correct idea? For we understand that God has given us answers to all the pertinent questions that we may inquire, and you and I can look into his word and seek those answers that he has given to questions like these. In fact, we may so say that the church, as long as this world will stand, will have to face questions that, in fact, may be asked of it. And it needs to be able to turn to the Word of God and provide the answers and those ideas to help individuals as they see what God has revealed. This evening, I thought, as you look at the array of questions that are therein presented, we, of course, will not have the time to look at all of them, but only the last one will consume our attention for this evening. And in fact, if we may enhance the nature of this question, we are interested in this. Noting there, I've only listed fellowship hall as well as to eat in a church building. And so, more specifically, is it in line with the Word of God to have a structure, a building, if you will, that may be used for fellowship purposes, and is it right for Christians to assemble in there and partake of what we might call a fellowship meal? Again, we should never lessen or reduce to anything trivial a question of order like this one, and so our interest will be a, a powerful one. And I'd invite you to look with me into the Word of God as we seek to provide an answer to these questions tonight. The first thing we need to understand, it would seem to me, is to ask the very matter of what about the funding, the money that itself is used for purposes such as the construction of a fellowship hall or a building like the one in which you and I may even be gathered now. Of course, what about a church treasury? In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, made this inspired comment by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Now concerning the collection, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let each one of you lay by him in store, if God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And in fact, in the 8th and ninth chapters of 2 Corinthians, we read further about what those funds and monies were expressly used for. We note then that there was the existence of a treasury for the church in Corinth, if you will. They, by the free will offering and collection that was taken up on the first day of each week, that funding and money was utilized in a treasury circumstance for the purposes of maintaining the work of the church in Corinth. That part is abundantly clear, isn't it? And thus, as Paul gave orders or statements relative to that, we can appreciate that today it is entirely right with the approval of heaven for the congregation at Pippin or any other to have a treasury into which our free will contributions on Sundays on the first day of the week are placed, that then that money or funding may be utilized for the accomplishment of the good which has been ordained in the New Testament Scriptures. But to say all of that quickly asks about the specifics of how is that money to be used. What can it be used for? Might we note, as we did in passing a few weeks earlier, that the New Testament authorizes but three works for the church. Let us review those somewhat briefly. There's the work of evangelism. In Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, as well as the Great Commission is written in Matthew and Luke, illustrates to us the pertinent requirement of evangelism, doesn't it? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Matthew's version, as well as the inspired version contained in Luke, point us to the fact that all creatures of every nation under heaven are in need of hearing the saving message of the gospel. Thus, could some of the funding in that treasury of the church be used for the purpose of supporting evangelism? Absolutely. And in fact, we have abundant record in the New Testament of that very idea. I've listed for your consideration 2 Corinthians 11 verse 8, where there the inspired apostle said, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Paul thus stated to the church in Corinth that while there and in the labors in which he was involved with them, it was other congregations that paid him in fact, provided the support necessary for the maintenance of the things of his daily life. We should remember that Paul was a tent maker, and no doubt some of his support came by virtue of his own ability to provide for himself. But he did say that he had taken from other churches in the form of a missionary in order that he might produce the work or accomplish it there in the wonderful city of Corinth. Notice, though, that while there, what was it that Paul preached? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. (laughs) Thus, when Paul came to Corinth, he preached the truth of the gospel unerringly and unwaveringly, But since other congregations had at least partly aided in that support, we have New Testament heaven-approved recognition that you and I today could support financially a missionary preaching the truth of God's word. And isn't that a wonderful conclusion? Thus, when you and I support a work in India or in Africa or in Australia or other places around the world, we can see an example of that even in the New Testament era. But what about another work commanded of the church, and that's edification? In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, we notice there that again the inspired apostle made note of various works in the church, and as he listed those particular personalities, he made note of apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists. But notice the purposes for which they were provided by the God of heaven in the next verse was for the perfection of the saints, for the edification of the body of Christ in love. And thus as they performed the God-given capabilities provided to them, that should redound into the edification of God's beautiful body, the church of Christ. In fact, isn't it a fantastic idea to notice that in light of that, I've also listed another text in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, the same one we noted earlier. And now might we notice the emphasis on the last phrase of that verse, to do you service. Paul's work in Corinth wasn't just something that had no specified purpose. It was for the purposeful aid of those brethren in Corinth. He encouraged them and edified them and strengthened them in the faith. No wonder, as 1 Corinthians 16 tells us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13 as well. Quit ye like men, be strong, stand fast in the faith. He exhorted them, he edified and encouraged them. And so today, we realize one of the grand works of the church remains the mutual edification and encouragement of one another. So that we each may come into the fullness of the unity of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4:13 to 15. That idea and thought prompts us to consider yet the last one, that work of benevolence. We notice again that on many occasions that's addressed in the New Testament a work that the church is supposed to accomplish. I listed for our thinking Galatians 6 verse number 10. In that closing chapter of that book of Galatians, he said, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It was the case then, wasn't it, that Paul urged the accomplishment of good in the lives of all, and especially those who are brothers and sisters, those who are of the household of faith. And isn't it true that we see an explicit example of that in 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 4? where Paul made a collection from congregations in the regions of Macedonia, but the purpose for that collection was for the benevolent aid of regions around Jerusalem. Thus, in each one of these instances, we have scriptural examples provided to us that it is right in the eyes of heaven for us to engage in those same works even today. We have built a foundation from which to move at this point. We have learned that there are specified works in which the church can engage. We've learned that heaven approves these works, and now we're ready to return to the initial question with which we were going to deal tonight. What then about a church building? What then about a structure an edifice that may be constructed with funding out of a treasure, if you will? Might you think with me for the next few moments about a building, per se? Isn't it amazing that as you and I turn the pages of the Word of God, we do learn that it wasn't always the case that God looked disfavorably upon the nature of specified structures and that which took place in them. For example, consider the tabernacle for just a moment. Even in that early day, in Exodus chapters 25 through 40, Recall with me that God invested 16 chapters of the Holy Bible to specify not only how that structure was to be built, but every article of furniture that was to be in it, how that furniture was to be built, and what purpose that furniture was to serve. It thus would seem the case that under the law of Moses, God had a respect for the character of that structure and what took place therein. But consider the temple as well. Indeed, many chapters later, but we also learn in 1 Kings chapters 4 through 8, as well as in 1 and 2 Chronicles, that the temple was also vastly important in the eyes of David and Solomon and also God. Recall with me that David actually gathered the materials to be used in its construction, but David was not permitted to build that uh, temple. However, his son Solomon was. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read about the blessing that was to come upon the construction thereof. Might we remember in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 9 that when that was finished, God's blessing came upon it to an extent that it was appreciated in verse 3 of chapter 9. God said, I have put my name on this structure. Admittedly, those are Old Testament ideas, but we do see in them that these structures had an importance in the eyes of heaven. Our interest would be, what about a structure under the New Testament era? Would we find the characteristic of heaven's support for using church money to build a building or to perhaps build a fellowship hall or to some other other kind of arrangement like that? I've listed some other thoughts for your consideration as you look further on uh, on the screen. As you and I look through the 27 New Testament books and read them carefully, we reach a rather interesting conclusion, namely that there's no evidence at all that the church of the first century owned property or even owned a building. Not a single reference even hints to that which offhand makes it seem a very interesting question, doesn't it? To amplify that thought a bit further, consider what assemblies did take place and where they occurred. We find uniformly that those assemblies, when the church of the first century came together, they met in common places or in the houses of those who were members. For example, we learn in Romans 16 verse 5 as well as 1 Corinthians 16 we have a special mention there that Aquila and Priscilla had a church that met in their house. In other words, the church convened for assembly at the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And this happened in two different places. The New Testament aids us to note that they lived in Rome for a while, but with the terrible occurrences under the reign of Claudius, they were forced to leave and they lived in Corinth for a while. In each case... Both while in Rome and in Corinth, the church, while there, met in their house. What an interesting conclusion. But that isn't the only house church mentioned. There's also Colossians 4, verse 10, where their nymphos is also said to have housed or provided the assembly place for a church in Colossae. But yet consider yet another. In Philemon, verse 2, Philemon also met or allowed, hosted if you will, a church to meet in his house. These have helped us see then that in that first century era, the church met in the houses of one of its members or again in some common place. Maybe an example of that latter could be found in Acts 16 where there the women were meeting by a river when Paul came, preached unto them and that's where Lydia was actually converted. Though, in fact, upon her conversion, she became a member of the church, could it be that on other occasions the church may have met near a river or under a particular tree that was centrally located in the town? Perhaps that may well have often occurred. These thoughts, then, have challenged us to see that the world in which that first-century church existed, at least in terms of that, was a bit different than what you and I are accustomed to today. But that will aid us as we note the following. What then can we say about having a building? Would it be wrong for a church to have a structure, a building that was provided and built with funding made available from its treasury? Let us return and ask that same question in light of some other thoughts. There are many things you and I might could well mention that you and I wonderfully make use of today that we do not find any mention of in the New Testament. For example, we have enjoyed this evening the usage of a song book. Where will one find that in the New Testament? We have also today made wonderful use of something like a technological means of presenting matters like the sermon in a PowerPoint presentation. Where is that mentioned in the New Testament? Specifically, obviously, it isn't. PowerPoint wasn't invented for centuries after the days of the first century, was it? As you and I consider all of that, we then realize that the answer must come as we look at its fulfillment relative to those works of the church. Consider with me the following. Our situation, as you and I present and look at that, is a little bit different in this respect. In that first century, Acts chapters 2, 3, and 4 tell us that the brethren were typically rather poor in such a way that they had to pool their resources even to meet the needs one of another. They did not have the means of owning land especially, it would seem, in most instances, and certainly the construction of a building was not easily accomplished, if even at all. But today, our circumstance is a bit different, isn't it? Would it then be possible to see an approval from heaven for us today then to do that which perhaps those brethren could not, even if they'd wanted to? consider the things about a building. What does a building do? A structure, an edifice, a building encourages a sense of that which the New Testament wholeheartedly endorses, doesn't it? I've listed some passages for your thinking. In that listing, you'll note with me the following. A centralized location for the accomplishment of evangelism. When you and I come together for a period of Bible study, or for a period of worshipful service unto the God of heaven. We understand that God did require specific acts. When we come together, this provides a location at which we can not only perform that, but do so with a recognition of his blessing as we worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4 verse 24. And not only that, to see that a building per se would allow us the capability of performing edification in a way not easily accomplished in any other way. When we come together and mutually encourage one another, doesn't that make us recall the encouraged idea of fellowship? That word of the New Testament occurs seven times. And as that word occurs, it means a community. It means a sharing. It means a strong mutual relationship between individuals. We understand that when people don't come together, and to do so in a fashion that would encourage such, that sense of community is very difficult to make possible, is it? It's very difficult to make it happen. As we've looked at these ideas in regard to a building, might we say then that in light of that a building is able to aid in the accomplishment of not only evangelism, not only edification, but in addition even benevolence. Surely then it would be entirely proper and right for a congregation to have a building and to use that facility for purposes of worship, to use that facility for the accomplishment of the works that God has ordained and outlined in the New Testament. But that same set of reasoning and conclusions would also accord to the character of a fellowship hall. When brethren come together and they share a sense of community, And they're able to appreciate their one bond in Christ. And they are able to do that in the purpose, not, for instance, of anything that's an unchristian spirit, but of a sense of mutual love and honor and respect. They also are edifying one another. They also, in fact, could well appreciate that perhaps many a precious soul shall be able to enter the wonderful halls of heaven because of a truth taught from the presence of a fellowship hall. Many times, great edification, even benevolence and evangelism has occurred using those structures, hasn't it? Might we observe and note even at this point that the thought, though, does extend one bit further. For you see, we have only answered part of our initial question. There's still another part to come. We understand that eating a common meal is not a part of worship, is it? That's not one of the aspects that has been ordained and approved by heaven that is to be an act of worship. And thus, what about the assembly of a congregation in a fellowship hall to partake of an ordinary or common meal? We understand that that's been one of the issues that many have asked about for well over a hundred years. Might we also spend a moment and reflect upon that question? It is at this point I would ask you to note the following. The following. We actually are asking this, is it then right? Is it thus heaven approved for a person to eat a common meal in the same place where a worship service would take place, in the same structure, in the same edifice? We noted earlier that the first century church did not have buildings as you and I have them today. We note that they met, of course, in the homes, by and large, of those that were members. And thus, at this point, it suddenly becomes rather obvious to answer one aspect of that question. Clearly, the first century church would have met in places where common meals were eaten because the church met in public, in, in people's houses. The house, say, of Nymphus, or the house of Philemon, or the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And thus, it's clear that they met in a place for worship where, in fact, a common meal had been eaten and was regularly eaten. That seems to strongly suggest that the following conclusion is also something to be considered. In Acts chapter 20, we appear to have a direct example of this very thing happening. Recall the scene there with me. It was the third missionary journey. In verse 7, as Paul came to the city of Troas, we note that a very interesting statement is found. It says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, desiring to leave on the morrow, preached until midnight. We have seen the power of the fact that on the first day of the week they came together to break bread, a clear reference to the partaking of the Lord's Supper, because on the first day of the week they met to partake of that glorious memorial to the character of what Jesus established on the very night prior to his crucifixion. But notice four verses later, after Eutychus had fallen from the window and of course was found dead, Paul went down, laid his hands on him, raised Eutychus up, and then it says that Paul ate. This would now have been Monday morning by my reckoning and yours. And Paul ate this ordinary or common meal in the same place that they had just partaken of the Lord's Supper not many hours previous. We see then that apparently the following conclusion seems to say that yes is the answer. Yes, it is not inappropriate for a congregation to come together and eat a common meal in the same place that worship may take place at other times. That certainly is not to say now that the common meal is to be a part of the worship, for that is not true, but... There's a text that was read earlier that seems to weigh in heavily on this subject, doesn't it? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it is to that that I would urge you to turn with me as we look at the last segment of our lesson this afternoon. In 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse number 20, we read that a moment ago. Let us reread that now with an understanding of the background to which we are bringing with it. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before he, another his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and to shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped saying this blood is the new testament and my this cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. You and I need to appreciate that as Paul wrote this, obviously there were some rather strong assertions, were there not? He's charged them it's not possible for you to eat the Lord's Supper when you come together in a way like this. What way was he talking about? What was taking place? The church in Corinth was beset with a myriad of problems, wasn't it? Problems related to division. Individuals were following men instead of the Lord. Individuals were, in fact, of such a case they were going to court one with another, as we learn in chapter 6 of this book. They had questions about the usage of spiritual gifts, chapters 12 through 14, They had questions about divorce and remarriage, chapter 7. They had questions about the resurrection, chapter 15. One of the issues with which they also were dealing was the Lord's Supper. Notice how Paul begins this, When ye come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul is dealing with an abuse that was prevalent as it related to their partaking of the Lord's Supper. And by reading verses 21 and 22, we can see what that abuse was. Notice again, have ye not houses to eat and drink in? And that statement directly follows in eating, verse 21, everyone taketh before another his own supper. This is what was happening in Corinth. We learn in Jude verse 12 that it was not uncommon for love feasts to take place. That was a feast that you and I might describe as an ordinary or common fellowship meal. They'd come together and bring their own meal, and they'd share one with another as they partook in fellowship. But as that love feast is mentioned in Jude verse 12, and also in 2 Peter chapter 2, we notice that here the church in Corinth had chosen to do this. Though the Lord's Supper is not a common meal, its primary thrust is not the nourishment of our physical body. Its thrust is the memorial of Christ. But the church in Corinth was combining the two. They were not only partaking of the Lord's Supper, but combining it with this ordinary meal. And in the combination, notice what was occurring There were some who had plenty, and as they brought what they had, they were filled. And not only that, they had been able to drink of liquid or to drink and thus become satiated or full, verse 21, but those that were poor were left out. They didn't have a meal to share. They did not have that which they could bring. And in this abuse, Paul says, verse 20, it's not possible for you to take the Lord's Supper under circumstances like this. You have not used this supper as a recognition of the Lord and Savior. You've turned it into an ordinary meal, which was not a part of ordained worship in any part of the New Testament. As Paul addressed that idea, notice that they had compromised the sanctity of the Lord's Supper. They had compromised its integrity by turning it into a selfish feasting upon what they were able individually to bring. That, of course, is far removed from the attitude that is to surround the Lord's Supper, isn't it? The Lord's Supper is this time of fellowship and communion with the Lord. For later in this same chapter, he'd say, we must discern the body and blood of the Lord or else we partake of it unworthily. Its thrust, again, is not the physical nourishment of our bodies. Its purpose is to plainly set before us the character of that crucifixion of our Savior and to proclaim until he come again the reality of what happened at Calvary and the benefit that you and I enjoy day by day as children of the Almighty King of Heaven. Paul's words here then were addressed to correct this abuse of the Lord's Supper in Corinth. Because notice what is stated also in the character of what is written in verse number 22. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Paul's statements are, if this is what is going to happen when you do come together in a love feast, these fellowship meals, you'd be better off to not have a fellowship meal. It must not be characterized by selfishness and fending for oneself while ignoring a brother who does not have to share. Paul's point then It would be better for you to not have these if this is what you're going to allow to happen. Notice also in the same text. This is the very text, verse 22, that has been used on many occasions to challenge the rightfulness of ever meeting as a church for a fellowship meal. Is that what Paul meant? Can this text be used rightfully to thus say that a church ought not come together and enjoy a common meal? In which there's no un-Christian ideas, it's just a time of community enjoying one another's fellowship in Christ. Let us quickly note that Paul did also say, "Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? It thus is the case that if one were to be able to use this text to say that it's not right to come together for a fellowship meal, it isn't right to have a water fountain in a church building either. It's not right to have running water there. For if eating is condemned in that way, so too would be drinking. But not only that, notice what occurs later in the same idea. Because we can also see this conclusion. Later in this chapter, Paul would say the following. As he made reference to verse 34, he said, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. And so if this text is so read in a fashion to where it would be wrong for a congregation to come together to enjoy a fellowship meal, notice he said at home it would be entirely improper and sinful for a Christian to eat anywhere other than home. That would thus state restaurants are not allowed. Eating at the home of another would not be allowed. We can then see, it would seem, that this text was never intended to be utilized to say that a church cannot come together and in a spirit of Christianity and mutual faith and recognition and respect of one another to enjoy a fellowship meal in a structure provided like a fellowship hall. The New Testament endorses and supports both of those ideas so profoundly and also so remarkably beautifully. Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians was not to tell them to have no love feasts. It was to correct them to where if this is what you're going to make of them, to abuse the worship, then you ought not so meet in that fashion. The abuse was what was being corrected, not the having of the fellowship occasion or the meal that would encourage edification. A congregation that shares a fellowship meal in unity, in the spirit of kindness and mutual understanding and respect and honor of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the bond that they shared by the blood of Christ in no way violates the text of 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 to 26. In fact, these passages of the New Testament that encourage our fellowship would strongly encourage us to understand what we can encourage and edify in one another and to appreciate, in fact, The rightness, from the point of view of heaven, of you and me as Christians attempting to do that is we even share a common meal with those of like precious faith. 2 Peter 1, verse number 1. To look at these ideas this evening has driven us to a conclusion. Let's try to summarize that which we've stated tonight. We understand that from the historical perspective, there have been issues over which brethren have not always agreed issues that sadly have often been divisive, but issues which could have been answered using the character of God's word and to have done so in a spirit of unity and mutual respect and love. We've learned this evening that it's entirely right for a church to use funding from its treasury to support a structure, an edifice, even a fellowship hall, so long as that is used for a way that would be a work of edification, a work of evangelism, or another encouraged and ordained work of God, and that even as that would include the sharing of a meal, the mutual appreciation of a love feast in a place like that. Tonight, as we have studied these matters, our goal has been to rightly divide the word of truth and to seek to appreciate what the Holy Spirit has revealed for you and me we realize that one of the matters that is hidden in this is the nature of fellowship with God. First John 1, verses 5 and 6 remind us that that's the greatest of all fellowships. For you see, when we enjoy fellowship with God and with his Son, we are promised in verse 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Have you had your sins cleansed by the blood of Christ this evening? If you have not, then realize the Savior then demands the following. Believe upon him, repent of your sins, come confessing his sweet name as Savior, and be buried with him in baptism for remission of sins. If we could assist you in doing that, all things are ready and prepared. If you have done that, but have not been faithful and true to your Savior and Master, come back to your first love tonight. We'd be happy and honored to pray on your behalf, just as was done in Acts 8 that in fact your sins would be washed away and forgiven, and that, again, you could take again your rightful place of justification. If we could aid you in any of those ways tonight, let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing.